Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay, and we're coming to you a day late. Obviously, uh, it was two days ago now that the Phoenix Suns clinched their third ever NBA Finals berth and uh, their first since 1993. So obviously, very exciting times for Suns fans and for all of you listening right now. Um, I was unable to record this podcast the night of because, uh, I'll be honest, covering a NBA Finals clinching game was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. But it was a great night and a lot of fun for me, obviously, being able to write about such a performance from Chris Paul in Game 6 to close that series out, the Western Conference Finals. Um, And we're going to talk about him today, obviously, because he is the big story from that game and from the Suns' entire season, honestly. Um, So we're going to talk about what I believe is the best performance of his entire career, which is saying a lot for a future Hall of Famer like him. Um, We're also going to talk about the asterisk conversation that keeps happening in regards to the Suns and just this entire postseason in general, Uh, you know, calling this a Mickey Mouse championship. We're going to get into that a little bit because it's become another hot topic of debate on, uh, on Suns Twitter lately. And I feel like it's something that needs to be addressed. And uh, we're also going to talk about um, A Quiet Place, part two, for our latest G-rated segment. So that's going to be fun. Um, That came out a few weeks ago now, so that's a little bit old. uh, But uh, I wanted to touch on it because it was a really good movie. And for those of you who are new to the Suns bandwagon, I had a segment especially designed for you because I feel like a lot of people are only learning about this team because they're so fun, because they're in the finals now because Chris Paul and Devin Booker are showing out. Um, And let's be honest, a lot of the national coverage has not been great in regards to this team because a lot of these people are only watching the Suns for the first time this season. Uh, If then, you know, a lot of these people are just watching the Suns for the first time since the playoffs started. So uh, I felt like it would be nice to give some bandwagoners, some new fans, five just key things that you need to know about this Suns team Uh, that maybe you wouldn't be able to pick up on from the national coverage because, um, and and I don't mean to like bash the national guys, especially some of these guys that were covering other teams and had to, you know, shift their focus to cover the Suns for their outlets because their outlets are shorthanded. It's an industry problem. These people are doing the best that they can to cover a team that they know not as much about. It's a difficult task. Um, The reason we know as much about the Suns as we do is because we, follow them every single day basically and are up to speed on every little development that's a tough thing to throw somebody into the mix in the playoffs and expect them to know the ins and outs but some of the national coverage has been bad some of it has been cringeworthy so I wanted to just lay out five key things that Suns bandwagon fans need to know or people that are new to this team that want to learn about this team before the finals should know Um, but we got to start with Chris Paul obviously because he is the reason the Suns were able to pull out game six on the road and close out this series. And, you know, we had talked about it on the last podcast about how Chris Paul had not looked like himself 
um, in his first three games of the conference finals. He missed the first two because of the positive COVID test, but in his first three games, he had shot 19 for 60 from the field. And a lot of them were just makeable mid-range shots that he normally hits. He didn't really look like himself. He wasn't assertive. The Suns were playing at a really slow pace with him on the floor. It was just really bad. And it was one of those things where it became easy to overlook how much a good Chris Paul would swing the series back in the Suns' favor. Um, and we saw that result in game six. You know, he had 41 points, eight assists, four rebounds, three steals, shot 16 of 24 from the field, and seven of eight from three. Just a virtuoso performance from Chris Paul. He scored 27 of the Suns' 35 points in a span that bridged the end, end of the third quarter and the start of the fourth quarter. And that was when he really, they put the Clippers away, basically. Um, he's the oldest player in NBA history to drop 40 plus points in a closeout game. Uh, oldest player in NBA history with 35 plus points in consecutive closeout games, which surpassed Michael Jordan at age 35, I believe. Um, he had 31 second half points, which is the most in any half of his career. Um, and just the fact that he did this after shooting 19 of 60 in his first three games back after testing positive from COVID, after being away from the team for like 10 days, um, he told us after game six that an MRI had told him that he had been playing with uh, partially torn ligaments in his hand from, I think that was uh, Patrick Beverly or a Terrence Mann slap. I can't remember, um, but he got slapped on the arm early in, in game three, I believe. And he was playing with, you know, partially torn ligaments in his wrist. Um, so for him to come out after all of that and put that performance together to secure his first NBA finals berth, like at the age of 36, um, you can't say enough about that performance. And he, he hit the biggest shot of the game as well, because there was that run in the third quarter where the Suns had gone up 17 and then the Clippers fired right back with a 10 0 run to cut it to seven. And it was kind of feeling like danger time. And the Clippers had a, a miscommunication and coverage in their zone. And Chris Paul was just wide open from three. And it was one of those little shots where he had all day to look at it. And Monty Williams called it a moment because they were basically just staring at him, you know, hoping that he wouldn't hit that shot, daring him to prove that, you know, the point guard is the point God is mortal. And he drilled the shot and he put the Suns back up 10. And from there, they busted another lead wide open again. And uh, it just kept coming in the fourth quarter. So that was a huge moment. And, and Monty said that symbolically, it was kind of like a coach, I got it type deals. And that's exactly what it was. So it was really cool to see him rise to that occasion when he's been trying to get to this point for so long. And, and he was locked in from start to finish. Um, Jay Crowder actually told a really great story about how he wouldn't let his guard down for even a minute until that game was all but put away. I kept asking him, and I kept asking him in the fourth quarter, you taste that? You taste it? He's like, no, no. It's all right, come on. We're going to keep playing then. We're going to keep playing. Five minutes ago, we up 21. You taste that? No. He go back out, bang, hit the top of the three, key uh, three. I'm like, all right, he's still feeling it. So about it didn't take it took us about to get stuff out of the game in the fourth quarter. He was like, I taste it now. I taste it now. I'm like, all right. So I love that story because it's it's quintessential Chris Paul and it's also quintessential Jay Crowder. Um, but this is a guy that would not let anyone break his concentration, would not let anyone jinx him, would not let anyone take this moment away from him, this moment that he's been so close to multiple times and has finally gotten through. 
Um, you know, and, and he's been through a lot just in this playoff run alone. You know, you'd want to talk about his shoulder stinger in the first round where he couldn't use his right arm for basically three games, um, testing positive for COVID after having an incredible series against the Nuggets and then having to shake off that rust and, and the wrist ligament damage. And, you know, now he's finally in the finals for the first time in his 16 year career. Like, and, and this is, you know, this postseason run has been kind of emblematic of his whole career as well. You know, you talk about those those catastrophic turnovers that everyone remembers from the Oklahoma City Thunder series, I think back in 2014, um, you know, how they how the Clippers coughed up a 3-1 series lead against the Rockets in 2015. Um, you know, in 2018, you talk about how he was one win away from the NBA finals with the Houston Rockets against arguably the greatest team of all time, and he couldn't play in the final two games of that series. Um, and he had to watch as his team lost those two games and missed out on the finals. So for him to finally break through in this way with the best performance of his career, you know, and that whole uphill climb converging with the Suns uphill climb as a franchise, um, it was hard not to get emotional watching him hug Monty Williams on the sideline afterward. Like he finally did it. He finally got there. Um, and we've seen this, his career, this uphill climb unfold over 16 years with multiple different teams. And I know this is just his first year with the Suns, but seeing him reunited with Monty and Monty knowing all that he's been through and, and, you know, that, that moment was just beautiful. And it was awesome to see him finally break through and get his opportunity to play for a championship because as Devin Booker said, Chris Paul is stamped, you know, he's already where he is in NBA history as one of the all-time greats. So whatever happens from here is extra, and you hope that the Suns have four more wins in them to, you know, conclude this this storybook ending in the way that they want to. Um, with that, we do need to talk about the asterisk conversation that's come up because let's be clear, there's, the job is not done here. The Suns haven't won anything yet. They've won the Western Conference, which is great third finals appearance in franchise history. Fantastic. But they haven't won a title yet. And yet already people are talking about what it means if the Suns win this championship and how it doesn't really count, how there should be an asterisk next to this title. Um, you know, how it's a Mickey Mouse championship run, all this bullshit. We've got to stop with this because it's, it's such a dumb conversation it's pointless, it's disingenuous, and it really overlooks any and all context. So we're going to lay all that context out here because I think it's important because I think every Suns fan should be able to enjoy this title run um, and just block out all that noise. But if you're unable to, if you're like me, if you see all of that kind of negative backtalk and that backlash and it bothers you, I think it's important to be able to know all the facts and be able to cite them back to people who are just going to make these dumb, lazy arguments. So, you know, they kind of center around the fact that obviously in the first round, the Lakers weren't fully healthy. LeBron James wasn't a hundred percent himself. Anthony Davis suffered that groin injury uh, about midway through game four and didn't really play the rest of the series. He tried to go, but was unable to. Um, then you talk about the second round, Jamal Murray was obviously out with the knee injury he sustained during the regular season. Will Barton, I think, missed a few games. P.J. Dozier was out. And then you move on to the conference finals where Kawhi Leonard missed the whole series. 
Serge Ibaka missed the whole series. Uh, Ivica Zubac, who played pretty well in that series, missed two games. Um, and then you look ahead to the finals matchup that the Suns could have waiting for them, and it's either the Bucks, who we don't have any idea what Giannis uh, Antetokounmpo's return timeline is like because of that hyperextended knee, and then Trey Young has a, a deep bone bruise in his foot and has missed the last two games for the Hawks. So it, it feels like everything is conspiring to let the Suns win. And people are already making that case that like the Suns are where they are because they've gotten lucky because every team that they played has been banged up. Um, for starters, you play who's in front of you. And I feel like this is always the main counter that comes with this stupid talk about, oh, you had an easy run to the finals. You play who's in front of you. You can't help that. You can't control that. You play who's in front of you. And the Suns have been extremely good against the teams that have been in front of them since the NBA bubble started. Okay, so since that 8-0 run in the bubble, the Suns are 71-25. and 25. Um, They're 8-0 in the bubble, 51-21 and 21 in the regular season, 12-4 and four in the playoffs. So that's a win percentage of 74% or a 61-win pace if you're talking about a regular 82-game season. Um, so this has been a 61-win pace team since the, the bubble started. So it's not like they're just some lucky Cinderella team that's come out of fucking nowhere and beaten up on you know teams that have been down on their luck injury-wise. Like the Suns have been extremely good all season long dating back to the bubble. You know, they had the NBA's second best regular season record. They had a top 10 defense and a top 10 offense, which is typically indicative of championship caliber success. Um, and they had the best record in the league against teams that were at or above 500, which is not insignificant. It's not irrelevant in this type of conversation. Um, you know, if, if you think a healthy Lakers team, or a fully healthy Clippers team, or even a fully healthy Nuggets team would have beaten the Suns, that's fine. I mean, you can make that argument. Like they were really good teams and we can have a basketball discussion about that to a certain point. But when you when you cross the line and start saying like, the Suns are only where they are because of injury luck, like that's disingenuous. It's not a basketball discussion because it just proves how little you know about how good the Suns actually are. Um, and it's a pointless exercise anyway, because guess what? They weren't fucking healthy. Like, that's the reality of what it was. They didn't have their players. The Suns beat who they had. And, you know, when you lose a star player, you also have to take into account that the game plan totally changes. If you come into a game preparing for a certain player to be there and they're not there, you know, that changes things. That changes the equation a little bit. You have to adjust to that. I'm not saying that these teams are better without their star players. I'm not going to make that argument because that's stupid. But you know, guess what? Every team in the playoffs this year has dealt with injuries because of this incredibly short offseason and these unprecedented times that we we're talking about where two seasons were thrown off by a global pandemic. Um, you look at the Nets, James Harden, who has been an Ironman, was banged up and couldn't play in the playoffs. Kyrie Irving was out. Um, for the Bucks, Dante DiVincenzo, they lost him for the entire postseason. And I know that DiVincenzo is no Kyrie or no Harden, but he was a starter for the Bucks, and he was a key piece for them, a depth piece for them. And now they're dealing with an injury to Giannis. You look at the Hawks, they have been missing DeAndre Hunter. And then now Trey Young is banged up. You look at the 76ers, Joel Embiid playing on a torn meniscus, even though he played really well, still playing on a torn meniscus. 
the Jazz. Mike Conley missed basically all of that series, and Donovan Mitchell was hobbled uh, for most of it against the Clippers. You look at the Clippers, Kawhi out, Serge Ibaka out, Ivica Zubats gets hurt, Marcus Morris said he was playing at 75% for most of the series. All of these teams are getting banged up, and the Suns have not been immune to that either. Like Chris Paul suffered the shoulder stinger that had him playing with basically one arm for three games from the second quarter of game one until about the halfway point of game four. He said after the game that it was one of those things where he couldn't practice or do anything with his shoulder in between game days. He was literally just playing game to game at that point. And it took him a while each game for his shoulder to get warmed up to feel more comfortable. So the first half of game four, he was kind of, you know, irrelevant, like not the Chris Paul that we're used to. And then he came to life at the end of game four. And we should point out that as much as Anthony Davis's injury made that series infinitely easier for the Suns to win, it also doesn't mean that the Lakers would have won if he had been healthy. Like that's a, you could debate that for sure, but it doesn't automatically mean they were going to win that series. Like the Suns were up at halftime when Anthony Davis got hurt before he got hurt. Like they were winning that game and they were playing really well in that game. Um, And I, you know, before that series, I had picked Suns and six, all things considered. I knew that Anthony Davis and LeBron James were maybe not a hundred percent where they needed to be for a title run, but I thought it was more due to they hadn't had a lot of time to shake off the rust and and get back in game shape. I didn't think it was because they were going to get banged up or athletically be limited compared to what we're seeing from them. So it's one of those things where obviously that's just one person's opinion. That's my opinion. And you can call me biased because I cover the Suns. But like, I genuinely thought that at full strength, this Suns team was better than this Lakers team, or at least, you know, the positions that they were coming into this playoff series. So, you know, it's one of those things where people just, Lakers fans are so sensitive. I don't get it. Like you have 17 championships and you're more sensitive than any other fan base. Um, you've seen some of the weird talk on how many Lakers fans are, are making this case that the Suns title run doesn't count when they themselves had an incredibly easy path to the finals last year. If you look at the quality of opponents they played, um, but we don't need to get into that right now. So, you know, Chris Paul shoulder stinger, then he had test positive for COVID and is away from the team for 10 days and missed the first two games of the conference finals played through rust, played through torn ligaments in his wrist. Look at Devin Booker, who broke his damn nose in like three places in uh, game two of the series and wasn't the same the rest of the way. Obviously, Patrick Beverly's defense had a lot to do with that. That was a great adjustment from Tyrone Lue, and Beverly did a great job on Booker. We can admit that. But Booker was clearly uncomfortable with the mask. He didn't have his peripheral vision. We saw it multiple plays, especially in his first game wearing the mask. He was fidgeting with it all the time. He finally wound up taking it off because it was bothering him so much and he wasn't playing well. Like it was clear that the broken nose and not being able to get it fixed properly with the short time between games and having to wear the mask impacted him. And then you talk about campaign who rolled his ankle. uh, I think that was in game three and wasn't quite the same for the rest of the series. Like, these are all things that were impacting the series. You know, it's easy to say, okay, Kawhi's out, Serge Ibaka's out, the Sun should easily win the series, but it's not that simple. Like, Reggie Jackson was playing out of his fucking mind. DeMarcus Cousins was having an impact here in 2021, the year of our Lord. Like, these are things that normally don't happen that were happening for the Clippers. So, as much as, yes, they would have been better with Serge Ibaka, yes, they would have been better with Kawhi Leonard, other guys stepped up. These are all other professional basketball players that played really well 
in this series and and the Clippers are a resilient and well-coached group like we should give them some credit it shouldn't be all about like uh the Suns suck because they beat a, a banged up Clippers team like the Clippers played a really great series they weren't the best team in that series clearly as a lot of people like to make that argument like oh this the Clippers are up 17 points in the series through five games well guess what game six completely swung that the Suns won the series by 10 points so like what are we going to do now what are we going to talk about now to try and make an excuse for why the Suns are where they are it's just aggravating and it's so stupid because it's a conversation that we don't need to have like we don't have to act like the Suns have been immune. We don't have to act like they're only here because they stayed healthy. Like every champion in NBA, NBA history has required a little bit of luck or just staying healthy or a favorable matchup or a guy going down. Like it happens every year and we do this every time and it's so obnoxious. Um, and, and the thing that bothers me too is with a lot of these guys that we're talking about, these aren't exactly like unpredictable flukish injuries. Like LeBron James wasn't 100%. Okay, he's also 36 years old and his body has more mileage on it than anybody in the NBA. Like eventually that's going to catch up to him, especially with the shortened offseason that everyone had to deal with this year, especially coming off a finals run. Like that's not some unpredictable, tragic thing that happened. Obviously it sucks. We want our players healthy in this league, our superstars especially. But like, are we really going to act like this is some catastrophic thing that we never could have seen coming? Um, same thing with Anthony Davis. He's constantly banged up. Um, and that's part of the calculus with him as we saw him at his best last year during their finals run, their championship run. That's what you hope for with Anthony Davis. But you can also get this part of Anthony Davis where he's banged up and can't stay healthy. That's part of the equation. Um, same thing with Kawhi Leonard. He's missed multiple games for load management and for injuries over the last few years. He's very um, careful and cautious with his health that that's these are not surprises you know Jamal Murray's injury was unfortunate and that came out of nowhere but the Nuggets were still one of the best teams in the NBA after he went down and they beat a Blazers team that was like a trendy upset pick in the first round that had Damian Lillard on it so you know I, I don't like this this idea this disingenuous idea that like oh what a tragic what if like what if they had stayed healthy a lot of these guys typically don't stay healthy. A lot of these names, this is nothing new. And especially off a shortened off season, it's not like this is some out of nowhere thing that's taken us all by surprise. Does it suck? Absolutely. But is it a reality of some of these guys careers to this point? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, if we're going to get caught up in the whole discourse about rings and championships, like it always comes down to rings. We always discredit guys careers if they never won a title you know, especially a guy like Chris Paul. Um, he's always been thought of, his career has been held back compared to other legendary point guards because he's never led a team to the finals. He had only been to, you know, two conference finals before this, this year. Um, so it was always this thing that put limitations on his all-time place among the greats. And, you know, if we're going to do that, we can't then turn around and be like, Oh, if he wins a championship, it was, it was too easy. Like he only got it because guys were banged up. Like, which one is it? That logic is infuriating because like, if you're an NBA fan, why are you trying so hard to downplay players accomplishments and discredit them at every turn? Like if you're an NBA fan, shouldn't you like basketball and like seeing players succeed? I know Chris Paul is an acquired taste and he's not for everyone, but like, you have to respect him at this point, what he's doing, what he's done with the Suns team, his 16 year career. He's a hall of famer 
and arguably, you know, a top three point guard all time. So it, it's one of those things where it's just frustrating to hear all this asterisk talk because it's totally unnecessary. And it's, it's just weird how many NBA quote unquote fans are trying to constantly undermine players' accomplishments. It's, it's weird, bitter, sensitive behavior. Um, and it's just annoying. So fuck the asterisk talk, basically. If the Suns win a championship, Suns fans, you should be able to enjoy the hell out of it because you have suffered enough. And it, it's pretty glaring how some of these other fan bases have never, some of these entitled ones, especially like the Lakers, you know, they're used to winning it every year. They've never dealt with an injury what if before. Suns fans have been there multiple times. They've dealt with it. So nobody's going to feel sorry for some of these other teams having to deal with a what if of their own for once and Lady Luck finally smiling on this forlorn franchise. <laughs> like, I, I don't think you're going to get much pity from Suns fans after all that they've been through in the what if department. Um, we're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. So quick thing for the new fans that are jumping on the Suns bandwagon. We're going to talk quickly about five things that you need to know about this team. We're just going to run through them because we still have our G-rated segment after this. But the first one is that Devin Booker is the foundation. He is the reason that all of this is happening. You know, we can have debates about who the best player on the Suns is, who the most impactful player on the Suns is, who is really, you know, the straw that stirs the drink of this team's success. And, and you could make a very good case for Chris Paul. But without Devin Booker, none of this is possible. He is the cornerstone. He is the bedrock of this franchise. And he's the reason this is happening because Chris Paul has said multiple times, you know, he had say in where he wanted to go when he was traded from the Thunder. And he wanted to come to Phoenix. He wanted to play with Devin Booker. And that is a huge thing to hear from a Hall of Fame point guard like Chris Paul, one of the greatest to ever do it you know, a guy who's played with James Harden and so many other superstars at every position on his rosters. He wanted to come to Phoenix and play with Devin Booker in the same backcourt, which is a huge endorsement because he saw something in Booker, not just his talent, not just his work ethic, but his capacity to be a good defender and his competitive fire that he felt uh, kinship with because he's the same type of guy. You know, they've talked about how they've almost come to blows when they've played against each other because they're just that competitive. But now that they're on the same team, there's no ego. They want each other to succeed. They want the team to succeed. And that's an incredible thing to hear from a guy like Chris Paul. But, you know, Devin Booker's patience, his um, tolerance for a lot of the unfair criticism that he got, the way that he harnessed that criticism and addressed some of these areas of his game that needed improvement you know, when he first came into the league, it was, oh, he's just a shooter. And he developed more of a handle and developed more of a well, you know, rounded game. Um, then it was, oh, he's an inefficient score. Then he got more efficient. Then it was, oh, he doesn't make plays for others. Then Devin Booker became a really good passer and playmaker, especially out of pick and rolls. Uh, then it was Devin Booker doesn't play defense and he puts up empty stats and he's not a winner and all this other bullshit garbage that was just lazy storylines for people that didn't actually watch the Suns. And, and fair enough, because the Suns were borderline unwatchable for most of Devin Booker's first four years in the league. But you could tell people that actually knew Devin Booker's game from the people that just thought he was overrated and putting up big numbers on losing teams. 
because a lot of those people didn't t- bother to take a look at the garbage rosters that were around him. Like it was basically Devin Booker and four G league players for most of his first four years in the league. And people expected him to carry those teams to 30 wins and carry them to the playoffs, which is just unrealistic. And we saw it last year when you put NBA caliber talent around Devin Booker, the results will be there. You know, their record wasn't great heading into the bubble, but they won those eight games. They put themselves on the map. They put themselves on Chris Paul's radar and Jay Crowder's radar and the radar of a lot of guys around the league who signed veteran minimums like, you know, uh, Etwan Moore and Langston Galloway, depth pieces like that. None of that happens without Devin Booker constantly working at his game, constantly improving over these last few years, biding his time, waiting for his moment. He was built for this. We're seeing it in the playoffs with the numbers that he's putting up. Uh, He's averaging like 27 points, six and a half rebounds, almost five assists um, on like 56.6% true shooting. His sons are 12 and four. Like he is leading a team to the finals in his first playoff run. He is built for this moment. It's been incredible to watch. He is the reason why this is happening. Related note for number two, the second thing that you need to know about the Suns team, Chris Paul's leadership has been instrumental but shocking this Suns team's success up to basically Chris Paul dragging a bunch of youngsters to the finals and Chris Paul being solely responsible for their growth is, you know, it's not, it's inaccurate. It's wrong. Like that is overlooking the jump that so many of these young players have made. And that would be short-sighted because you look at a guy like Mikhail Bridges, who is becoming an incredible two-way force. He hasn't really had many playoff moments in in this postseason run but he's a tremendous defender great slasher improving mid-range shooter off the dribble even um and a really good three-point shooter you talk about uh you know deandre ayton who will we'll get to him in a second but his leap in these playoffs has been phenomenal uh you talk about cam johnson who's been an underrated defender a three-point sniper a very smart just all-around well-rounded player more than anyone probably thought he was going to be um, campaign the job that he's done. He's younger. He's a younger player as well. Still uh, the job that he's done off the bench, like Chris Paul's leadership has been huge. He's had a positive impact on these guys. No question. He deserves a ton of credit for where the Suns are right now, but this is not a, a case of old man, Chris Paul teaching a bunch of babies how to get to the finals. Like, these young players leaps have been phenomenal and they deserve their own credit in that right. Because Chris Paul has said, you know, I didn't establish the culture here in Phoenix. I, I, he came here, Monty and and Devin Booker and these young guys established it last year with that bubble run and with what they were trying to do even before the bubble run, Chris Paul came here and boosted the culture. You know, he, he had a massive impact on it, but it was already in place. The foundations were already laid in place so we don't have to do this thing where especially during the regular season when people were trying to make an MVP case for Chris Paul they were basically propping him up as the reason why these sons were actually good this team was going to make a leap this year anyway maybe not finals contender leap because Ricky Rubio is no Chris Paul but they were going to make a leap regardless Chris Paul has boosted that leap both of these things can be true without having to give too much credit to any one person it's it really is a perfect storm of things coming together at the right time number three DeAndre Ayton we have to talk about him because 
he has been phenomenal in these playoffs. He's arguably been the Sun's most consistent playoff performer. Um, and he's had a couple of duds. I think he had one in, in game three against the Clippers, but he responded really well in game four. Um, <clears throat> Aiton's been fantastic. But I swear to God, if I see one more person saying, we got to feed the big, big man, like we got to post him up, like, no. Are you even watching DeAndre Ayton? His value is not in post-ups. And I'm not saying that all post touches are bad. Like post-ups and post touches in the right capacity are really good because DeAndre Ayton has great touch. He's very efficient around the rim. But if you're talking about old school, classic, like throw the ball into him in the post on the block and let him make a move, that's not DeAndre's strong suit. That's not his thing. He has very limited moves. He's not as comfortable off the dribble yet as he will get as years go by his value is not in old school post-ups it's in maximizing his role as a screen and roll guy as an alley-oop threat on the rim when he rolls uh with his gravity when he rolls because when you have a seven footer charging down the lane like that you have to put bodies on him and that opens things up for everyone else all the shooters on the perimeter um you know his value is in his offensive rebounding and putbacks his automatic finishing ability around the basket uh, with his defense, with the way that he's able to clog up the paint, contest shots at the rim, close out with defensive rebounds, switch out onto the perimeter, move his hips, move his feet, stay with smaller guys that can dribble, you know, that think they can dribble past him. That's where his value is. So we got to stop with the feed eight and discourse where he's not getting enough touches. If he's not getting enough touches, it's because he's probably not rolling hard enough. And, and the Suns guards have missed him on occasion. I'm not going to act like, you know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't acknowledge that. But when he's putting his gravity to good use, when he's rolling hard, when he's setting those sturdy screens and carving out space for him on those roles that other teams have to deal with, you know, he's either getting easy looks at the bucket every time or he's freeing something up for someone else on the perimeter. And it has a huge impact on what the Suns are doing. So when he's locked in, when he's doing those swim moves on offensive rebounds to get by guys, when he's just relentless like that and he's not taking possessions off, which during this playoff run has been 99% of the time, the Suns are a phenomenal team. So we don't have to you know, force feed him the ball on the rock because the Suns, the Suns offense has never revolved around DeAndre Ayton post-ups or getting him the ball or, you know, you know, get him the ball and let him go to work. That's an old school mentality. And it's not the beauty of the Suns 0.5 offense. His effectiveness comes in other ways that he maximizes his role by sacrificing a little bit. And I think in the future, we're going to see a much more dangerous DA when he, you know, when he's more comfortable with that mid-range shot that he'll take on occasion, when he expands his range to three-point range, when he's comfortable putting the ball on the floor and making a move and, and developing, you know, some spin moves or some fakes or some just general other post moves, he's going to be unstoppable. But for right now, his value is not in, you know, having him post somebody up unless there's a huge size disadvantage. Um, and that's, again, that's not to say all post touches or post ups are bad, but if you're, you know, looking at Andre DeAndre Ayton's field goal attempts each half and wondering why they trickle off or why they're not as high as they should be, you need to look at other areas of the floor and actually watch what he's doing out there. And you'll get a better indication of whether this is a good DeAndre Ayton game or a bad one from that. Uh, number four, and this is for national media people mostly, but there's this weird tendency to try and give uh, 
former general manager Ryan McDonough credit for, you know, laying the foundations of the Suns team. We got to cut that shit out right now. Like kill it before it grows. This is not Ryan McDonough's team. Did he draft Devin Booker? Yes. Did he also want Frank Kaminsky in that draft with the number 13 pick, but then picked Devin Booker because Kaminsky was already off the board? Also, yes. You know, did he draft DeAndre Ayton? Yes. But until this playoff run, that was looking like a dicey pick because they left Luka Doncic on the board. And, you know, Ayton is vindicating himself now. You're hoping that he is the Hakeem Olajuwon to, you know, Luka's Michael Jordan in this case. You know, the Rockets don't regret drafting Hakeem over Michael Jordan, who is the greatest player of all time. We could be heading for similar territory where Luka Doncic is the better individual player but the Suns are vindicated by this selection if they win a championship. They absolutely are. But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a great pick at the time. It was a good pick, and it's becoming a great pick now. And he's vindicating that pick, yes. But we're not going to give McDonough credit for that, for, you know, landing the number one pick and taking DeAndre Ayton because he was going to get a great player either way in that situation. And then you want to talk about the Mikhail Bridges trade on that same draft night, that was that was Robert Sarver that wanted that. Like McDonough himself has come out and said that he had pressure on him from Sarver to do that. That was Sarver's call, not his. He was going to take Dante DiVincenzo or uh, Shy Gilgis Alexander, neither of whom are bad players. Like Dante DiVincenzo, great player. Shy going to be a star in this league. But if you look at Mikael Bridges, he is obviously intrinsic to what the Suns have accomplished to this point. And he's going to be huge for them for years to come on the defensive side of the ball, at least. And he's already developing a really good offensive game as well. So that was Sarver. So the three picks, you can poke holes in all three of the picks that McDonough made. And even with those picks, the rest of the roster that he put around them was an absolute dumpster fire. You look at how many games they won during his tenure. It's like 30 games, 19 games, 21 games, 23 games. It's fucking awful. Like they they didn't get to 30 wins during Devin Booker's time in the league. They they were just, it was a constant carousel of head coaches. Like there was more job stability with the defense against the dark arts position at Hogwarts than there was with the Phoenix Suns head coaching job. So we're not going to give Ryan McDonough any credit. He was an absolutely awful general manager. He had no idea how to deal with people while he was in place. The team was an absolute dumpster fire. James Jones is the one who came in here, who who hired Monty Williams, who turned the culture around, who got players who were actually good on the roster, and in just two years, turned this team into an NBA Finals team and a championship contender. This is James Jones's roster. This is not Ryan McDonough's job or his, you know, we're not giving him credit for the job that's been done here. So we got to get that shit. Stop it. Just stop it. Uh, And the last thing, if you are a Suns bandwagon fan, you're probably aware of this by now, and this may have factored into your decision to support the Suns, but the Suns have the loudest fans in the NBA right now, and it's not particularly close. Like, I have been to some really cool sporting events in my life, but covering this Phoenix Suns playoff run, I have never heard a home crowd as loud as it is in Phoenix Arena right now, and it is nuts, especially because the first couple games of the playoffs – they weren't even at full capacity yet. And these people were going bonkers for this team. Like it's, it's an 11 year buildup of not being in the playoffs. It's recognizing that this team is special. 
it's, you know, the, the post pandemic blues that we couldn't do anything for basically a year and couldn't have these, these big events where people are jam packed into, into a stadium like that. It's all of this buildup and it has created an environment that's unlike anything I've ever seen in sports. You know, you think about the Stephen A. Smith and Mike Wilbon reaction to the Valley Oop. I'd never heard a building go that batshit for a play like that. And that was the coolest moment I've ever covered in sports, honestly. Um, and one of the coolest I've ever seen in sports. Um, so if you are joining the bandwagon, you are joining at a terrific time because these fans are loud, they are nuts. And Suns fans just in general, even if you haven't been to a game at Phoenix Arena during this playoff run, Suns fans deserve this. You deserve every minute of the journey we've been on. It has been a long road. You have dealt with so much shit over the last 11 years. Devin Booker said it after game six, I've been through a lot of bullshit. You guys have too, and you've been there with him for every step of this journey the six years he's been in the league, the five years that came before that without Nash. It's been a really, really long time. And the Suns are finally back. Phoenix is a basketball town. You see it on your friend's Instagram stories when they're just watching the game at a bar. You see the excitement from Arizona transplants that are all over the country that are still keeping tabs on what the Suns are doing. There's an excitement around this team that hasn't been there since Steve Nash was in the building. And these sons have been able to do something that Nash was not, that Nash and Amari and Sean Marion were not able to do in making the NBA Finals. They're four wins away from cementing this fairy tale ending to this incredible story. And I hope for your sake that they're able to pull it off because you guys deserve every minute of this awesome playoff run that we are going through. Those are the five things you need to know about the Phoenix Suns. To close, we're gonna do a quick G-rated segment on A Quiet Place Part 2. I saw it a couple of weeks ago in theaters. It was one of the first movies I've seen in theaters in a long time. Um, and I loved it. So if you haven't seen the first Quiet Place, it's uh, with John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. And it's about this family that is living in this post-apocalyptic world, or I guess, you know, apocalyptic world because it's ongoing. But there are these monsters that come from outer space, basically, that they can't see but they can hear, they have hypersensitive hearing. So if you make any loud noise, like me recording this podcast right now, I'd be toast if these things were real, basically. <laughs> like they can hear anything, they can hear a crunch of your feet. You have to be dead silent around these creatures. And it's a really cool dynamic because, you know, they can see these monsters, the monsters can't see them, but the, if they make a noise, they're gonna get slashed or bit or eaten to death, basically. Um, so this one builds off the premise of the first one in that, you know, you can't make a sound. They have all these sort of defense mechanisms. They have to find these places where that are soundproof, stay away from these things. All of these people that are hunkered down in their homes, you know, these, these few survivors that they have, um, they don't trust people. They have defense mechanisms around their place that will make noise to keep other humans away. Um, it, it's really cool the way that they expand on such a unique premise in, in inventive ways in the sequel. Um, and it really sets the tone from the first five minutes because the first five minutes are a flashback to um, right when these creatures landed and basically started killing everyone. Um, and it just sets the tone in those first five minutes and it doesn't let up the rest of the way. And it does a really good job of just building the tension and heightening anxiety in some of these situations that these characters find themselves in. 
Um, you know, there's like this soundproof vault that they have for if the monsters get to this part of where they're staying, they can lock themselves in there, but there's a limited amount of oxygen and there's this little stopper that's in there to prevent it from closing fully um, so that they can let themselves out. But there's a part where, you know, I think the two kids are trapped in there and the stopper is not in place. So the mom has to come back and save them before they suffocate while also dealing with one of these monsters. Um, and they figure out at the end of the first one that they're super sensitive, these monsters, to um, this, this pitch from the little girl's uh, hearing aid because the daughter of John Krasinski and Emily Blunt's characters is deaf. Um, so there's a lot of sign language in the movie, which actually, you know, obviously is a, it was a bonus if you're living in a world where you can't make noise, being able to communicate in sign language is huge. And uh, the actress who plays the girl, uh, the little deaf girl, Millicent Simmons, it's really her movie kind of like she's the heart and soul of this film. And she does a tremendous job. Emily Blunt is great. So is Cillian Murphy. He's, um, you know, in the flashback, he's revealed as a neighbor uh, or a friend of John Krasinski and his family. And he re um, kind of unwillingly lets Emily Blunt and their newborn baby and their daughter and their son stay with him and winds up becoming something of a hero. But there's just, it's really tense throughout. It's really well done. And because it's tense and, and finds ways to heighten the anxiety in almost every scene, like the jump scares, and there are a lot of jump scares, they feel earned and they don't feel like cheap. You know, you sometimes you go to a hack and slash film and there's just a lot of jump scares and they just feel like it's for the effect of making the audience jump. But this movie does a really good job of building up to those jump scares, delivering them at the right times. And um, they don't feel cheap, they feel earned in that way. So really good movie. John Krasinski is good at this. I think he directed this one as well. Um, he's pretty damn good at, the, at these horror movies that he's made. And this um, A Quiet Place franchise that he's put together has been very good so far. Uh, so for my final G rating, I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it, especially if you saw the first one. It is a good movie to go see in theaters if you're comfortable with that at this point. Um, it should be better. Hopefully you're vaccinated by now or still wearing your mask in public. But uh, definitely recommend this movie and would go see it. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please make sure to subscribe. Tell your friends. Write me a five-star review if you're enjoying the show. Until next time, this is Gerald Borgay signing off.